I first became acquainted with Kathy Pickens back in 2020 when I used her book, Charlotte True Crime Stories, as part of my research. If you haven't listened to episode 13, I encourage you to check that out as we discussed her research and writing process for True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina. Today, I'm excited to have her back on the show discussing cases she wrote about for the books True Crime Stories of Western North Carolina and True Crime Stories of Upstate South Carolina. Kathy Pickens is a lawyer and college professor who, in addition to writing six books in the true crime genre, has also published five books in the Blue Ridge Mountain Cozy Mystery Series. She taught law in the McCall School of Business and served as provost at Queen's University of Charlotte and as national president of Sisters in Crime and on the boards of Mystery Writers of America and the Mecklenburg Forensic Medicine Program, an evidence collection preservation training collaborative. Today, we will talk about notorious South Carolina criminal, Sam Wadke, the Shaw Creek killer from the same state, several mysterious disappearances from the Great Smoky Mountains, a perplexing murder from Boone, North Carolina, and the murder of the stepdaughter of an App State professor named Aaron Johnston that took place in China. I also couldn't help but get her take on the recent Murdoch murder trial. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day, but all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 67, a conversation with true crime writer, Kathy Pickens. Hello, Kathy. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Hi, Brene. It's great to be here. Thank you. We are so excited for this conversation today. We've got a lot of good things to talk about, and several of them came from uh, some of your books, which we will link those in the show notes so that our listeners can check them out. I wanted to start off this conversation by talking about the Murdoch murder trial, since you are a South Carolina native. (laughs) What were your observations about the case? And what do you think about the most recent developments involving the allegations of misconduct by the clerk of court, Rebecca Hill? Um, This is this is the case that just keeps on giving. Um, People have asked me, why are people so fascinated with it? I I mean, just sort of has everything. Um, And I as a South Carolina native, I'm from the upstate. So lower part of state South Carolina is a kind of mystery to all of us, Um, even though a very tiny state. But people say, oh, they were power brokers. They had so much control. It wasn't that the Murdoch family did bad things to people if they were mean to them. Um, it's that they were in the position to do favors. And this had been several generations worth of folks who could. So so to me, that was one of the mis, you know, misinterpretations of it. I mean, you go back and look at the, and I've, I've just written about a case that, uh, Alex, daddy was involved in. Um, they they tended to do people favors rather than try to crack down on them. But the case itself was fascinating. I was, as a former trial attorney, I was rather alarmed um, that so much was allowed in testimony about the financial 
aspect of the case. And for me personally, this is not necessarily a popular point of view. I don't think the prosecutor did a good job um, tying together the timeline. There's holes for me. And I see that as reasonable doubt. I just don't feel comfortable about how the case was presented. Somebody the other day was saying, well, do you think he did it? I said, "That's I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer. That's not the question. <laughs> the state proved its case. And I think there's holes. And they spent so much time on the financial problems, which he admitted every single thing, every single one. He's This is prison for the rest of his life based on those things. Um, so I'm talking only about the murder trial. So that was one thing I, I had problems with at the beginning that the judge allowed in. And he's a very fine judge. And then the allegations come out that the clerk of court has really had rather cozy relationship with the jurors. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm just seriously out of touch or what? I started talking to trial lawyers I know from all over the place. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. I mean, she had close contact with them to the point of allegations are that she was saying, oh, don't pay attention to this or, you know, that it's like, what? Um, I mean, I've served on juries. I've, you know, tried, it's like, I just never seen anything like it. Um, my husband's just read her book. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the right moment for that. Um, but regardless, I still put Alex down as one of my all, you know, certainly top five best uh, witnesses ever. Um, just mesmerizing testimony. Um, so, um, it, it's a case that's going to keep on giving. <laughs> so, we have plenty more to talk about. It is. And I don't know that we'll ever have all the answers. To <laughs> we won't. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating about it is we won't. Right. I'm going to bring up one thing that I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I was watching the most recent three episodes of the documentary that Netflix put out. Yes. About. I haven't <laughs> seen it, but yeah. And they had scenes from the auction of the Moselle house yeah. or the belongings that were in the Moselle yeah. house. And I personally would not want to go buy anything that had been at a crime scene or anything like that. Yeah. And I was pretty surprised at how many people were there Oh, <laughs> and what they wanted yeah. to buy and how they were very yeah. excited about their purchases. Yeah. And, that really set off a, a whole host of ideas in my head of, oh, there's there's probably an article in there about oh, crime memorabilia. Absolutely. They call it murderabilia. And there is a there's an, an alarming market in it. Um, and I say that, but I have long wanted to have um, there was a, a case in Charlotte involving a woman who basically cut, almost cut her husband's head off with a straight razor. And at the trial, they sold little straight razor lapel pins. I have to admit that I would like one of those, um, but that wasn't directly from the crime scene. Um, right. And yeah, the Jim Baker trial, they had the t-shirts for I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall. I mean, you know, the kind of tchotchke things that come part of is, you know, they're, they're just, they're not selling, you know, cotton candy, but other things on the courthouse steps. Um, you know, that's sort of tongue in cheek, um, fun, but the actual stuff that's there, um, is a bit beyond my taste. I'll have to be honest. I thought it was a little macabre, but yeah, that's the know. word. That's the word. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that, moving on. That's just that's just us. Or whatever y'all want to quit. You, some you some people some people are very interested in that, and I and yeah. yeah I personally think there might be bad juju connected. Yeah. And I yeah. yeah, exactly. But uh, they can cross that bridge when they get there, right? Yeah. So moving on, um, let's talk about Sam Wadkey now. Is that okay? Um, yes. Sam Wadkey was a South Carolina criminal who was convicted of murdering a constable in Greenville while fleeing from a robbery scene. Can you tell us a little more about that crime and how he ended up on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries in 1996? Well, um, Sam was just basically a criminal. That's what he did. He robbed people, that sort of stuff, kind of low level stuff, no, no murders or anything, but he and his friend, um, Mr. Corvette had decided to drive up to Greenville and rob the store the night before Thanksgiving. Everybody was in there buying their Thanksgiving goodies and all. But as they were leaving the scene, um, they ran into a, a sheriff's deputy and a constable and fired and, and killed the constable. The interesting thing to me was that that he, that, that Waikia brought his son. And the son found out, he was a teenager, the son found out what they were doing, and he just stayed in the car. I'm not going inside the family mart while y'all are in there robbing it. And one of the women in the store was a, a well-known reporter for Greenville News Station who happened to be there that night. Um, she's been on there for decades. Um, but Waikie wouldn't have been famous for that. He was famous for, after quite a lot of trying, many years of trying to escape from the Kirkland Correctional Institution in, in uh, Columbia. He and a buddy finally found their way out, and it was really quite extraordinary. I mean, it meant going into the tunnels underground down through a manhole and sawing their way through those thick mesh gates, metal mesh gates, and getting through a metal door and talking the other inmates who were down there into letting them <laughs> you know, leave without bothering him and jumping in a truck and leaving. Well, his buddy was caught pretty quick, but Sam was on the run for a while and ended up on America's Most Wanted, uh, excuse me, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, which we all love. And um, someone saw him and recognized him as somebody that she had known on a work site in Louisiana. He really hadn't done anything to change his looks. He had flowing locks and a big lavish mustache and you know just he was himself um and he ended up uh, being arrested as a result of his um less than 15 minutes of fame um unsolved mysteries so yeah I, and i thought that, i thought it was interesting because um again his son hadn't wanted to testify against him he did everything he could not to um but he just not, did not exercise good judgment in the choices that he made for himself or his family, but he did get to make it onto national television. From what I could tell from reading the segment in your book about him, he was quite a character. Yes, really yes. Did. Some of the and, quotes he had, and, yeah. And on the stand, I mean, he, the the um the the guy said, "Well, why didn't you just get out and surrender?" And he said, "If I'd have stopped that car and got out, then I'd have looked like Swiss cheese, buddy. Come on!" I mean, he's telling the prosecutor, to, you know, just like that. and he always was good for a, for a quote. His buddy Corvette was um. He kept talking his way out of, you know, longer sentences, get cutting deals and stuff for himself, and then just 
getting out early and going back and doing the same thing again. He died in a in a gunfight in um, Charleston while trying to rob an elderly couple, uh, and Waikie died in jail. But um, yeah, yeah, you got to give him kudos for color. Uh, yeah, you can't um, fault a colorful criminal, right? <laughs> There's plenty of them out there. Okay, let's talk about the disappearances from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park next. Um, what can you tell us about Dennis Martin, Trini Gibson, and Polly Melton? I had never heard of these cases, by the way. Um, you know, I had because I, I've you know spent my growing up years and since um, hiking all over the place, so especially Dennis Martin I knew about. Um, the others sort of in the back of my mind somewhere. And I've written this series for History Press that covers the regions of of North and South Carolina and very familiar with Western North Carolina. But until I sat down and looked at these disappearances as a whole, all together, um, it hadn't really struck me. And I've talked to people, I was I was talking about the book to a group of folks who were in Highlands, North Carolina. It's a lovely, luxurious, expensive resort. Um, town little tiny town um and that was my stomping grounds when I was little we lived down the hill from there and um so in the bookstore they're talking and this lady said she she lived in Highlands for at least 20 years she says I have never been hiking and that is why I'm here today (laughs) so so for all of us who love the outer doors and go up there to hike and spend time you know river rafting or whatever um she had just dismissed all that um but she was a city girl from detroit so th- this was ancient, just just alien to her but it really coalesced for me how hard these stories are for people to understand if they've not been there if you've not been in the depths of the smoky mountains the blue ridge the southern appalachian mountains the, all the sections um it's hard to imagine but the dennis martin case took place in 1969. So, we, you know, we're talking 50 years ago. This family had made this trip before, but this was little Dennis's first time. He was six. And they hiked in from Cades Cove, which is over the Tennessee border, into a campsite in North Carolina. And the, and the family was there, the grandfather and the father and other kids. And they met another family, and the kids were having fun playing on the bluff there. And the... um. The kids ran ahead of them, and the grown-ups could tell. Well, they were whispering and giggling, and they had some kind of, you know, trick they were going to play on them. And they they were kind of bottom them along, waiting to see what was going to happen, figure they were going to jump out at them. And the little kids had decided to do just that. So um, Dennis, the youngest of them, was with them, but he had on his little lace-up black shoes, not hiking boots or tennis shoes like most of us would wear now, and shorts and a red shirt. So he was easy to see as he flashed up the trail with the other kids. And they hadn't gone very far at all. The kids split off and the kids said, Dennis, you go on that side of the trail and we're going to go on this one because that shirt stands out. So um, they'll see you first. So you do that. And then he was gone. The adults came, the kids jumped out, they were laughing and giggling. They look around, where's Dennis? And he's gone. And um, they call and look and can't find him. And so the whole search is mounted, but rather bad weather hits the mountain that night. And he's not dressed for it, certainly. Um, And there was never a sign of him found. 
And what interests me about these stories is there's always, um, we try to make sense out of it. Um, somebody snatched him. Um, they carried him to a car somewhere. A bear got him. You know, bears don't much like they eat people. They like berries, <laughs> you know, grubs and things like that. N no bear activity was found. You know, n nothing like that. Um, and bears and bobcats and whatever tend to dig in for a bad storm. And this was high wind and rain that night. It was cold. Um, so they they called out the FBI. They're looking for them all over the place. There were some Boy Scouts in the area a few miles away. They've been hiking. Um, never another sign of little Dennis. I, I can't imagine anything worse than them seeing the flash of that red shirt and then he's gone. And the uh, it's almost 50 years later, a fellow who works for the Park Service and who is an expert tracker said that there were, they had found a single boy's or, or child's shoe print, certain place slightly off the trail. Um, and the people had just written it off, oh, that must have been the Boy Scouts. Well, he said the description was it was the wrong kind of shoe. And it was only one print. It wasn't like there was a lot of kids. So he guessed that he just wandered too far. And then the hypothermia got him. He was disoriented and probably fell. And he also pointed out that um, the, the the debris that accumulates, the leaf-fallen limbs accumulate rather drastically every year. So that um, very soon, you know, the remains, wherever they may have been, would have been covered up. And so that's been the that's been the touchstone disappearance in in the mountains for a long time. Um, it helps spark uh, some academic studies about where people go, depending on if they're adults or children, how far they go, what track they'll take when they disappear. And there's been some really elaborate academic work done to to help trackers know where to go. But then we come to a a little girl. I'm going to forget how old Polly was. She was in high school. She was um, over in the Clingman Dome area with a biology class from her high school, Tennessee high school. And basically the same story. Um, she is there with all her friends. They're heading back to the bus, about to go back uh, to take the bus back home that night after their um, field trip. And she's gone. Um, again, oh, there was car tracks here <laughs> over on this road and somebody must have snatched her and somebody must have taken her away. There's really no evidence of that. Again, a rather wild and rugged part of the country. Um, but how does a 16-year-old, um, I think that was her age, um, just disappear? And then we have, um, uh, excuse me, that was Trini. Um, Gibson, I call it Polly Milton. Then we have Polly Milton, and she is an older woman. She's what strikes me is she's six feet tall. I mean, this is not a little kid. This is not a teenage girl. Um, this is a large woman. Um, she's been in this area before. She and her husband bring their trailer up and camp in this place, not too far from Cherokee, North Carolina. There were other people that camp there every year in the fall. They, you know, get together and have cookouts. And um, these women would take off every afternoon and go hiking um, for a little while. Now, now she wasn't in great shape, um, but she always walked. She always exercised, but she smoked. And, you know, she was of a certain age. And 
um, you know, wasn't an Olympic athlete, but, but kept, kept busy, kept moving. And, um, my husband and I drove up there and it was kind of a misty rainy day to take some photographs and you wind down, it's two or three miles down a gravel roads, winding, winding, winding down, down, down to a river. And, um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty rambunctious, a lot of rocks, the water's flowing fast. A lot of people fish there, um, chop fish there. And then there's a the campground on one side and then the trail and the trail's an old roadbed. So it's pretty broad. It's not a trail where the, where the, you know, undergrowth is right on the trail. It's pretty wide and broad. And you're thinking, here's the river. I mean, you can step from the track, jump from the trail into the river if you're, you know, want to risk breaking your leg. But it's right there. Um, there's a slight rise. You can see. And she's, well, I walk with friends of hers and they, they said, well, she all of a sudden sped up and took off um, away from us. And we thought, well, that's not her. She's not that athletic. So we'll find her on the bench up here with a cigarette, um, uh, you know, or something where maybe she, and she wasn't on the bench. I said, well, maybe she went back to the trailer. Maybe she had to hurry back for some reason. Um, and she wasn't there. She's gone. There's no sign that she fell in the river. She would have, it's not deep. It, these are mountain rivers that are full of rocks and it flows, but it's not, it's not deep. Um, and they search, no sign. They searched along the trail side. The, the, it rises up on the side away from the river away so maybe she'd gone to relieve herself you know something had happened they searched very thoroughly over quite a while along the stretch between when she left her friends and the time where you get to the parking area and then onto the campground and never any sign again she was she kidnapped did she plan to run away from her husband and take up with somebody else she basically had her trailer keys and her cigarettes and her lighter that was it um no sign of anybody else in her life no reason why she ran off um just gone but unless you've been there near this really loud running river and with this thick undergrowth um we call them in the mountains, we call them laurel hills. The mountain laurel grows so thick that I've, I've watched, I've watched a black bear disappear into a laurel bush and you can't see him, a bear. And they're hard to get into. They're hard to get out of. In the summertime, they are hotter than hell. So hence their name. And, and um, there was a lot of that, that thick undergrowth along the trail. But again, um, we live in a damp environment. Um, there's lots of bugs and things that help de decomposition move along fast. Now, she disappeared in the fall, so it would have been cooler. That would have taken a while, but never a sign. And I think, especially for people who mostly live in cities and don't spend a lot of time out in the woods, it's hard to imagine a place that where the undergrowth is so thick that you could walk right by something and not even see it, whether it's a bear or a snake or a body, uh, even when they're looking for it. And uh, I think those three cases for me sort of coalesced this, and there's others, but those three coalesced that it is wild and it's not Disney World. And um, as careful as you may be, 
keep your eye on your kids or your friends, things happen. And um, there, there need not be any crime involved. That's mostly what I write about is crime. But this is very much a mystery and an enduring one in all three of those cases. It makes you wonder if she maybe had to go to the bathroom or something yeah. and wanted to go off the trail and maybe they, she wandered far, you know, further than they went yeah. around. Yeah. I mean, it could be. And, and, pro- and probably she would have gone uphill judging, you know, from the, the, the place and, and maybe, maybe had a, a medical incident, you know, something happened. Um, and that, I think that's the most plausible explanation. But we won't, you know, if it's your family member, you want something besides they're ju- they're just gone. They they were ta- overtaken by, you know, a heart attack, or they were overtaken by cold, or they just got lost and disoriented. Um, um, it's it, it's just answers. hard to we imagine. Yeah, we all want answers. We all want them to make sense, and it's it's I won't say funny, but it's interesting to follow these kinds of cases because as the press coverage and the speculation goes on after the initial disappearance, it becomes more and more bizarre. None of these involved alien abduction, but I have seen something that, that was the explanation. <laughs> hey, I, who knows? Maybe it's good as anything. Segway into an X-Files. Yeah. <laughs> we won't hum the theme song to that either. So. Yeah, we'll we'll cause people to have earworms if we yeah, do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to jump over to another mountain mystery, actually, since we're talking about the mountains. Um, In 1972, three members of the Durham family were found murdered under mysterious circumstances at their home in Boone. The crime has become known as the Boone bathtub murders. Can you share with us some details about that crime and and the possible connection recently that came up about the Dixie Mafia? This is just the most amazing case. Um, This is another case that's 50 years old. Um, and I can remember hearing about it way back when. Um, this is this is basically Boone, downtown Boone. This is not off in the deep of the mountain somewhere. Um, this family was fa- fairly new to Boone. It was a mom and dad and their teenage son who had just started Appalachian State. Um, they had come to town to take over a car dealership. And um, so they were working there and uh, the kid was going to school. Um, their daughter was married and was living nearby um, with her husband. And this was, um, Boone was getting snow this particular night. So they had kind of hurried home from a meeting that the dad had and everything. It's clear from the house that they had gotten home. Um, the, the Some of them had taken off their shoes at the door, but the dad hadn't. He had worn his shoes on into the bedroom. Um they apparently were sitting around sort of eating off the coffee table and watching some TV. Um, the family came looking for them, couldn't rouse them. This, this is what they find. Um, but in the bathroom, um, the water's running. They hear it. They go in there. And all three of them have been tied, their hands tied behind their back, um, and strangled and drowned in the bathtub side by side, leaning over the edge of the bathtub. I mean, it's a chilling story. Um, and the the folks who found them, it's just something that, you know, there's there was still one of the cops that was one of the first to investigate the thing later became sheriff of that county. And so this was a this was a case that just stuck with people. It was a the, I mean, here's this kid's a big, healthy 19 year old. 
Um, the parents weren't old or infirm. They were healthy. Who subdues three family members and manages to kill them all in this very bizarre way? Then the mystery got even worse. There were some things taken, but they were things like silver plate, like a serving dish or something, candlesticks, not anything of any real value. And yet the bank bag of money and checks from the dealership was laying there on the dining room table, untouched. So it didn't look like a robbery or it was a pretty inept robbery if it was. Um, their watches and jewelry weren't taken. Um, so what was this? Who did this? Why? So they're looking all over the place. You know, they arrest some known folks and, you know, you round up the usual suspects. They didn't do it. Um, nothing meshed with them. Uh, of course, people in the area were worried. Is this a home invasion? Is this something we, you know, is this something that we need to be worried about? Because that's the first thing we all think about when something like this. Anyway, this, the, the, the mystery remained unsolved um, for 50 years. So I'm writing about this because this has always fascinated me, this case. I was writing about it for the Western North Carolina book. I'm sitting with my husband watching we're watching TV and eating supper <laughs> one night, and um, I think he thought I was having a stroke. Both arms were straight out. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So it comes across that the case has been solved. And it's the sheriff that had been there for so long that's announcing it. He said, we we know what's happened. And, the, and again, we try to we try to make sense of these stories when we hear them. They had looked at the son-in-law, think there's— the sheriff still thinks there's a question mark there, and I would I would agree with that. I had looked at all kinds of things involving his dealings and some odometer um, rollback scams that had been going on elsewhere in North Carolina. Couldn't find anything. Turns out that there's a member, uh, the, actually the son of a man who'd been in the Dixie Mafia, is in a sheriff's office in Georgia. And he's wanting to write a book. He's helping somebody write a book about the Dixie Mafia and about his dad, and um, who's by this time dead. And he said, well, my dad told me about something that was up in North Carolina, and it was snowing that night, and they almost didn't get out of town. So the sheriff in Georgia picks up the phone, calls the sheriff, and boom, do you know anything about this case? <laughs> oh, my goodness, Yes. We absolutely know something about this case. So they go to Georgia to talk to the one surviving member of this trio that reportedly came to Boone that night to kill to kill this family. And uh, unfortunately, he's in the Georgia medical prison facility um, and says he has dementia. <laughs> Never quite sure with this guy. And... Um, you know, can't remember who hired him, um, but he knows he was the the getaway driver. Interestingly enough, a lot of people said he was the brains of the outfit, and he often told people he was the getaway driver. <laughs> so, so who you know who planned what and why? It looks like somebody hired him because they did that kind of thing, and they were known for these kinds of really rather crude break-ins. They killed a couple, an elderly couple in Georgia because they thought they had $4,000 buried in the shed and they found a can full of coins instead. I mean, this was not the, you know, the, the brightest bunch that, that um, ever decided to wage terror on people. 
Um, and the Georgia, uh, the Dixie Mafia is fascinating. I didn't realize they were in Georgia. I knew them from stories in, in Mississippi, especially around the Biloxi gambling area. And they've been involved in the death of a judge um, there. But this is a very, it's not like the, it's not like the Italian Mafia. It's, there. it's very loose knit. They don't have a dawn over everything. It's just little gangs of folks who identify with each other uh, one of them his last name is Bert B-I-R-T has uh, written his memoir um, that is you know must read <laughs> if you're fascinated by this stuff but the best they can put together is it looks like somebody hired him um, maybe told him there was money there um, it's really unclear what prompted it but they're sure from what after three interviews, this guy told them that they were, in fact, the ones who did it. Just everything matched up with what they had to say. And so that is one of the cases where all the speculation um, after the fact about what could have happened did not lead to the Georgia Mafia in, in uh, North Georgia, the Dixie Mafia branch. So um, sometimes it's even wilder than we thought uh, in our wildest speculation. And again, one of those, you know, cases where the crooks stayed missing for a very long time. I um, think we have it solved, but still don't have all the answers. You think he really doesn't remember who hired them? You know, the 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 reports that I was saying I think he did. Um, and last time I checked, he was still alive, but he was up in his 80s and um, not not clear that he would survive long. And um, a fellow who was with the um, the Vidoc Society, one of the founders of the Vidoc Society in Philadelphia, was called in. Now, his work has been called into question lately, um, so I'm not sure... Um, how reliable it was. He said at the time that he had told the North Carolina, um, the, uh, the the State Bureau of Investigation folks, who his money was on, but he wouldn't reveal that publicly. Um, but my guess is from things he said um, in writing about the son-in-law was that he had questions about him. The sheriff did too. But he was dead by the time this this information came out and couldn't be questioned because wasn't it the son-in-law and the daughter that found them yes they had gone looking for them yeah and there was some some sort of acrimony there I, you know you don't know because again how much is somebody thinking something might have happened so i wouldn't want to um, say anything untoward about them but there was a lot of suspicion around that and the sheriff when announcing that this happened said i sure would i sure wish we could talk to him so, um, but again, it remains one of the most startling and heartbreaking scenes to to see to think about this the these three folks um, who are apparently hardworking and um, getting established in a new place. That reminds me of I don't know if you've heard of this case, but there was a murder up in D.C several years ago and it was a, a pretty wealthy businessman and his wife and their son and they were all murdered in their home and it sounded like they had been held hostage yes and then yes. the house got burned down yes and one person was convicted of doing it one yes man. and they and that that was somebody who had worked for the the man 
Yeah. Um, and um, knew he thought he had money. So he ended up killing, I think, their their housekeeper or, or nanny. And I, that was a hideous case because they were oh. held hostage for a period of time. And the thing that led them to the killer was he ordered pizza. Right. And they found DNA or they something. They found DNA on the pizza. I just think there were a lot of questions. There were a lot of people that didn't believe he was able to do it by himself. Um, yeah, and that's a question. But again, if you're if somebody's got a gun on your kid um, and you think you can negotiate with them, yeah. it's entirely possible. But but the Boone case, it it was unbelievable that some one person could subdue three adults. Um or someone couldn't get away. Yeah, and Gizmo. So um, there were there were at least two of them inside, and probably three. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense in that case. Yeah, it's just, it, you know, I mean, we talk about these things, and 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 some people say, well, this is really gruesome, but you know, to me, it's important to talk about these things, and um, in part to to recognize and remember the folks who who've had something really tragic happen in their lives. I mean, these people had families and people who loved them and worked with them and for them. And, um, but I also think it reminds us how to be safe and the things we need to keep in mind. I, I know some people that don't listen to crime podcasts that kind of just wander through life as if nothing could happen. So. Yeah. They have a different perspective on life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, do you want to talk about the um, Shaw Creek killer next? Um, so, Michael Whalen, who produces the true crime podcast Unresolved, uncovered a series of unsolved murders that seem to be connected in South Carolina. What do you know about that? Uh, this is one I didn't know about, and I don't think a lot of people knew about until uh-huh. until Michael did his work. and. He's covered other cases, a lot of them with national um, reputations or national interests. One was the Delphi murders with the two little girls crossed the railroad bridge and were murdered. And they recently caught the identified the guy who did that and arrested him. But the Shaw Creek killer is um, another one of those that it takes a little while to put together. Part of the problem is it is in the Augusta, North Augusta, Aiken area of South Carolina on the border with Georgia. So you have two states and several counties involved, and that that, that split of jurisdictions always makes things more difficult. You also have the dumping of, the, of bodies, and this is a, a hot, humid, um, rural, woodsy area. Um, where de- decomposition can happen. I mean, you can fully skeletonize a, bo- a human body in two weeks in the summertime. Um, that people find, people think I make that up, but no, look it up. You can't. It's the it's the insect activity and, and the humidity. So um, these bodies were dumped. Sometimes they had been missing for two years. Um, two of them have not been identified. Two have been identified um, through some interesting sort of at the time new new technology um, or applications of technology that have 
been cutting edge in their time um, to identify the one that I found fascinating because they used a, the skull of one of the victims and they superimposed um, an image of a missing woman on it. And that was first used in a 1920s case that of all people, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in in the UK. <laughs> so, um, so you know, a hundred years later, we're talking about this, but um, they confirmed that with DNA when that became um, easily available. But two of the two of the women still remain um, unidentified. All four were young black women. Some of them of indeterminate age, but they tended the. the the youngest, most likely, is in her early 20s, but could be in her late teens, um, into their 30s. Um, they were found nude. They were found with no possessions around them. It was clearly a dump site. The interesting thing is they're it's kind of far from the road, and most killers are lazy. I mean, people in the mountains say, if you're going to look for a dump site for a body, you go downhill. You don't go uphill. They ain't caring. That's why the the term shallow grave is so often used. <laughs> Not going to dig a proper size hole, which is good for helping solve cases. We're glad that they're lazy in that respect. Um, they're not quite sure how they died. Apparently strangulation, although there may have been knife wounds or gunshots in one or two cases. And it, it took a long time for the cases to be tied together and it really was this podcaster who did that there's one that's kind of kind of an outlier not exactly in the Shaw Creek area but I think close enough um, to count but with the other similarities um, they're on the DNA Doe project they're they've they're with the uh, NamUs their information's registered with NamUs um, which is a fascinating organization. Um, if you haven't mentioned it here, I'll mention the readers of the book, The Skeleton Crew, that Deborah Halbert wrote a few years ago. It's about a guy who's quite passionate about finding the identity of a body that his father-in-law found alongside the oh, road. Todd Matthews? Yes. I met Todd. He's, just, he's one of those kind of people I love because I love people who are just crazy involved in what they, they you know they're passionate about and um he uh, eventually went to work for um the uh, the university of north texas in dentonville where they house this um identification place and he he recruited another person i met who was the uh head that the the, the forensic anthropologist for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. She's a fascinating woman. And um, he recruited her after she retired to come and work for NamUs. So they have done a lot of the work online, pulling together these citizen sleuths who were, like he was, using these message boards and all this stuff to try to match up descriptions of missing people with descriptions of unidentified bodies. And so they have... If, if you haven't looked at the NamUs website and you're interested in this kind of stuff, they've actually helped, you know, bring a lot of closure to families who are missing people um, just by pulling on this public access to this information. Um, and so these these women have been registered there. Um, and 
Waylon also lists the people in the area who were known to be killers at the time, um, but none of them quite match. There's four of them who were doing stuff, but, you know, one of them was farther afield. One of them was just too wacky to talk about. Um, you know, one of them was just killing white, white women, not black women. Um, the, the, the MOs just didn't match. The dump sites didn't match. Um, big question mark. Is it one person? Is it several people who just happened to leave their victims in the same place? That seems a little far-fetched. Um, but um, at least two of them, their families know what happened to them. But two women have never been given names or had family, you know, had families that were looking for them that found them. Um, and they could have come from anywhere in the South, probably. Yeah. So. Yes. Um, and you don't know because you do have I-20 that goes through there, um, Atlanta to the coast of South Carolina and all the way to the other side of the country. So you've got, um, you've got easy in and out access as the dump sites were not far from the interstate really. Um, but it's a hard area to find. I have a friend who lives in North Augusta and, um, Andy Hunter, and he's a wonderful drone photographer and retired Baptist minister. Um, <laughs> who um, I say, hey, uh, can you go find this place? I'd like some drone shots because you just, you know, you can't really imagine how thick this is. It's so long a, a creek in the mountains is different from a creek in the central part of North or South Carolina. <laughs> they get broader and more rambunctious in the central part. But it floods often. Um, there's and you're not not many people are in there unless they're cruising timber for a timber company. You know, measuring it to to um, harvest some, or unless they're hunting. I mean, there's no people hiking or that kind of stuff in there ordinarily. Well, how were the women found? If it's such a <laughs> timber workers, timber workers and hunters, that was it. Yeah. And so uh, that you know, some were there. I think a couple of years um, from the time they most likely died until they were discovered hmm. uh, yeah look i'll have to look more into that okay the last thing i wanted to talk about is in 1987 the daughter of an appalachian state professor was found murdered while their family was living in china during a study abroad trip can you share with us more about what happened there? Now, I know why Renee is interested in this story, because she has two kids <laughs> in or headed to college. And, and of course, I, I taught. And my husband is an App State alum. Oh, oh is, okay. Yeah. And, and so this, I, I, because I taught at a university for so many years, um, this whole idea of kids going abroad and something happening is just terrifying to me. We used to have a really active I guess they still do study abroad program. And and I, I was always, I, I was always terrified <laughs> that we, and we would tour or they would go there to study for extended periods of time. And um, there's certain things I won't do in certain places. I won't go because the, the, the law doesn't reach there. Um, ocean cru cruises are one of those things that go off the coast. I, no, sorry. The FBI cannot help you. But um, I will make a crossing on the Queen Mary too. That's different. But this case, it wasn't just a young lady heading off on her own or with some friends or fellow scholars. This was her whole family. 
um, the dad was teaching there. She and her mom were teaching um, English as a second language to Chinese students. She was studying to be a teacher, and so was really excited about the opportunity. They were in a compound um, of other um, um, expats who were in China for education purposes, either as a student or as a teacher. Um, now, some of the other expats, they, they weren't all from the U.S. They were from other countries as well. Um, but her her mother goes looking for her, and she's dead in her bedroom upstairs in their house. She's been murdered. And um, I think the the this is one of those enduring mysteries, not because you didn't find the body, um, not because you you know, don't know what happened, but there's absolutely no way you're isolated in another way. It's not the Great Smoky Mountains. You're isolated in another way because there's no way anyone is going to help you find out what happened. Um, they There were Chinese um, workers who would come into the compound. They did, the the young girl, the, the, the teacher, did find them in her room one day. They were supposed to be there working, but they were sitting there going through the photo album and going through some of her things. Curious, I'm sure, about these, these Americans who were here, who were visiting here. Um, but the government officials investigating just said, no, there's, you know, no one came in. It's no one we can identify. So there's very little help. And um, I can't imagine anything lonelier for a family. And to think they had crafted this fantastic opportunity and adventure for their daughter and it to end so tragically. Um, and these cases sort of disappear from sight. The Amanda Knox case... Um, where she was tried for murder, convicted of murder, um, get a lot more attention. That was much longer lived. And um, there was, whether she'll, you know, get out or not, um, kept, kept our interest. But this is just, that's it. That's the story. That's the whole story. Um, we don't know anything else. And we won't. So, How did you find out about that case? I, <laughs> A newspaper clipping was in my file. I, I just it was in the Charlotte Observer um, mm -hmm. when it happened, and I tried to dig in and see what else I could find, and that basically, you know, it it ended pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, Did I collect weird things like that. After that, do you know? They what? The family returned home pretty quickly yes. after that. And and most of the folks from App State did. Some of the students tried to stay a little bit longer. But that I mean, you can imagine that you just you're coming home. Um, some of her friends left immediately. Um and that that put a dent on the program, I'm sure. Um and it also because China had been such a safe place to visit. I mean, they have very close controls over everything that goes on in China. They certainly did at that point in time. Um, and so for this to happen was really quite shocking. Um, and if they if they arrested somebody, if they did something, they never say anything about it, and they wouldn't. Um, so let it go, didn't they? Yeah. Or to save face and to to try to um, keep the 
because it's beneficial for them as it is for Americans who want to visit. Um, uh, we were in Vietnam for a while and just practicing English with native speakers, even if they have weird Southern accents was helpful. <laughs> so it's, you know, the, it's a benefit to them to have the visitors there, not just money, but the cultural interchange um, as it was for the people. But it put a, it put a bit of a dent in their exchange programs for a while. Well, this has been a great conversation. I want to thank you again for coming on here. Oh, well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. It's always great chatting with you about these kinds of things. <laughs> and 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 to, and to chat with someone who um, is, is as curious as I am about them. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? It's in our nature, right? It is. Well, and I do think for some of these stories, it's very important that it stays out there. Who knows? Right. Some guy in the Georgia State Mental Prison is going to maybe come clean. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right. You, you just never know. You really do never know. Um, but I will link the books in the show notes for everybody. And I uh, just want to say thank you again for taking the time to chat with us and um, hope you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. Oh, thank you. You too. Take care. Keep us posted on those kids while they're off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, we, we won't talk about the security precautions right now. <laughs> oh, but let me guess, there are some. Oh, <laughs> That's what life's all about, though. You got to get out there. Yes. The... This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. We'd like to thank Kathy Pickens once again for taking the time out to be interviewed for the show. I will put a link to her website in the show notes so you can check out all her books and learn more. Before you go, I'm putting together an episode in the spirit of Halloween that features stories of people who have experienced paranormal events or places that have a haunted history. This year, I'd love to hear from the listeners of this podcast. Have you ever lived in a place you thought was haunted? Did you have an experience that was hard to explain? Were you one of the teenagers who went up to Helen's Bridge in Asheville, hoping to catch sight of the ghost? You can email me your stories at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com and bonus points if they tie to North and South Carolina somehow. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.